Anina, thank you so much. That was very beautiful. And between that and the breathing we did at meditation, I'm feeling very calm. (laughs) Which is good. It's good because, you know, um, here we are at a a platform which has some uh, challenge to it, some challenge for, for me in giving it and perhaps for you in hearing it. Sometimes I have a platform topic where I get so many resources. I ask for them. It's my own fault. I'll email people that I know do a lot of reading on this subject and ask them to send me what they have. I'll write to colleagues who've done platforms or sermons that I think said it particularly well. And sometimes I'll just get people sending me unsolicited but welcome uh, articles, having read the title of the platform or the blurb, things that they think I should be thinking about. And I love that. I end up sometimes, though, with so much material that there I am, sort of awash in other people's words. And I think, well, everyone else has said everything that possibly could be said on this subject already. Perhaps I will simply read a series of emails and um, long-form articles to the, um, or, or even better, hand out a list of resources on a piece of paper and leave it at that. This is one of those platforms, and so I am appreciative that I enter into it with so much calm and centering. But although there are great resources out there on this topic, and although you could simply spend hours just reading the internet, the point of my platform really today is about relationship. And so I think there's still value in us talking about it as a community not reading only a list of resources, but in me sharing some of my thoughts and hearing from you during community sharing and later, and us thinking about what all of this means for us here at the Ethical Society. So what are we talking about? If you haven't read the title and blurb ahead of time, and I I love it actually when people come in having no idea what I'm going to say, but it both makes me feel as though they are coming for the community and not the particular topic, and it also really reduces pressure, which is great. We are talking today about calling people out and calling people in terms of art within anti-racism work and anti-oppression work, but ones that many of us may be familiar with. Essentially, we're talking about how we talk with each other about the systemic oppression that we experience all around us. And it's important, I think, in a community like ours, a community that seeks to do anti-oppression and anti-racism work, to be able to have those conversations. Now, I want to say that I have some shared assumptions, or rather, I have some assumptions, and I hope you share them, I guess would be the way to say it, um, before we have that conversation. One of them is that systemic oppression is a real thing, that there is in our society oppressions like racism and sexism, like homophobia and transphobia, that operate in society at large. Another is that we are not somehow magically free from experiencing those oppressions and falling prey to them ourselves just because we hope to be progressive or good ethical people, but rather that those oppressions sort of make up the fabric of American society. And so, of course, they exist in a community like this one because this one exists in America. And so, of course, it's sort of part of who we are and how we think even as we try to work 
against those oppressions. And finally, I have an assumption that we that we are trying to work on it, that part of being in a community like this or part of the work that many of you do in your own lives, the reading that you do, the trainings that you take, the justice work that you engage in, is working on trying to fight against those oppressions in society at large. So those are some of the sort of shared assumptions that I have. There's another one that I think is important, and I I want to invite you to think about something called the dental hygiene philosophy of racism. So I'll tell you what I mean by that. A comedian, Jay Smooth, I actually think some of the best work on um, race and racism right now is being done by comedians. Um, There's a comedian named Jay Smooth who talks about the dental hygiene philosophy of racism. The idea is... um, that racism is like stuff in your teeth, right? Like spinach, you know, that you get stuck in your teeth or little apple pieces or, oh, it's corn on the cob season. That's been a mess this summer, hasn't it? Every summer, I think. This year, I'll, I'll be smart and cut it off the cob. But no, I go right for it. And then I spend, you know, half an hour in the bathroom flossing afterward. So just like that, racism, because it's all around us, like those little silks on the corn in the cob, get in our teeth sometimes. And sometimes when we are folks who um, work on anti-racism work and have taken trainings and really seek to be anti-racist ourselves, we can sometimes get stuck in this trap of thinking that we have um, already gone to the dentist, right? Like I went to the dentist um, for the first time as a child and I had a full dental hygiene cleaning. And so, so the thinking goes, now I'm not racist anymore, right? I've been to those trainings, I'm not racist now. Well, the thing is, First of all, you have to go to the dental hygienist ideally um, every two months. That's your public uh, health service announcement for me today. Um, The justice announcement related to that is we should have full dental care in this country. Um, but, um, But you're also, as it turns out, supposed to brush your teeth in between seeing the dentist. Were you aware of that? And floss, too, right? So the idea behind the dental hygiene philosophy of racism is that even when we feel that we have had the training, we are trying to be anti-racist people, that those of us with privilege in particular still sometimes get stuff caught in our teeth. And so when someone says to us, oh, you have something in your teeth, you know, those good friends that will actually tell you that there's something, right, you know, right, no, it's over there, you usually don't say, oh, no, I, I went to the dentist six months ago. I don't have something caught in my teeth, <laughs> right? You usually say, oh, my gosh, I'm sorry, excuse me, and you run to the bathroom and you try to fix it so that your teeth will look right again, and then it'll probably happen the next day, too, and so then you'll floss again. So that's sort of the idea, both that oppressions exist, that we fall prey to them, particularly those of us with privilege, and that we want to work on them so that when someone says, oh, you've got something in your teeth, we want to go and, and floss and fix it, even though we've already been to the dentist. So the question then is how we do this work. How do we point out to someone that they have something in their teeth That's a very awkward conversation. How do we react when someone tells us we have something in our teeth? How does our community handle the flossing that needs to happen between regular dentist visits? As I have been thinking about this, what comes to mind most is that context is everything. 
There is a difference in my mind be, between what someone in a privileged group can say to a peer, a relatively privileged group, and what we expect a member of a systemically oppressed group to, to carry. So sort of the idea, the difference between, for instance, a white person talking to another white person versus a person of color speaking to a white person. There are some things that we know about the conversations that white people can have with white people or that men can have with men or that straight people can have with straight people, right? Any of us who experience privilege in a particular part of our identity, and most of us have identities that are privileged in some ways and identities that are not privileged as well. Many of us carry all of that with us in a big, complicated way. Well, there are things that we know about the conversations that can happen and that are most effective when people of two privileged groups are talking, uh, two people of a privileged group are talking with each other. And in particular, when someone who is in a privileged group and dedicated to anti-racism work is having a conversation with a friend or a relative who has really no interest in anti-racism work, doesn't buy into it, and, and maybe is even actively opposed to it, right? And, and again, substitute in the oppression of your choice. Um, same thing around sexism, around homophobia, around transphobia. So some of the things we know there is that empathy is deeply important. That avoiding terms of art and instead focusing on deep listening and patience is important for those conversations. There was a great article on Vox by German Lopez um, where the author looked at a, a study on what's called deep canvassing, which was really important in changing attitudes around um, anti-trans discrimination um, around the country. It's also been used, um, was used earlier around marriage equality in this country. And looked at that study and sort of the way that deep listening conversations based on empathy and based on staying at the table, staying in relationship, were particularly effective. Lopez writes, the process of reducing people's racism will take time and, crucially, empathy. This is the direct opposite of the kind of culture the Internet has fostered, typically focused on calling out racists and shaming them in public. This doesn't work, Lopez writes. And as much as it might seem like a lost cause to understand the perspectives of people who may qualify as racist, understanding where they come from is a needed step to be able to speak to them in a way that will help reduce the racial biases they hold. End quote. You've seen this as well, perhaps, in articles that call for you to stay in relationship with relatives and friends who hold views diametrically opposed to yours, so that over time, with care and thoughtfulness, empathy and listening, you're able to shift the conversation slowly but surely. Those articles tell us not to write people off, not to say they're never going to get it, but instead to keep talking with them, to try to have conversations that continue and shift opinion. Now, what about among activists? So now, if we're talking about folks who are all dedicated to anti-racism or anti-oppression work, anti-sexism work, what does it look like among activists? Well, context still matters there, and so does empathy. I often see among activists, even in communities like ours, that people can sometimes have an experience of tearing each other down, catching each other in doing or saying the wrong thing that can make it hard for folks on the journey to want to participate. 
Sincere Carabo, who's the social justice co coordinator of the American Humanist Association and a black man who writes about racism, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia, had a great um, Facebook post on this just a few weeks ago. And I kept trying to pull out quotes that I wanted to share with you. And then the whole thing was so good that this is one of the things I'm going to read most of it to you. Here's what Sincere said. I can be both a social justice instigator and someone who doesn't excoriate, sabotage, and banish people to the thou art trash netherworld based upon romanticized pursuits of purity that fail to locate the human in a very human endeavor. We are all problematic, he wrote. Yes, you too. His words, although I would agree. Yes, me too. Messy and will screw things up or get things wrong. So long as your missteps are areas you seek to improve rather than harmful attitudes or behavior you intend to maintain, I'm here for you. I'm willing to work with you. True, some folks may not be worth the time or energy to engage, or worse, they may be irredeemable. The problem is, he writes, this hawkish thirst to pounce on folks due to one wrong word or failing to assimilate idealistic standards kind of makes it difficult to tell the difference between those who are works in progress and those who are not. Some people are content with cliquish bubbles that share duplicate positions, language, and expectations, and that's cool for them. But I'm not here for that, he writes. I'm working towards building communities where people aren't so easily disposable, where people are more concerned with emphasizing accountability through teaching and compassion rather than merely shaming or dragging and plucking out those failing to conform and incorrectly equating this conduct with the former. I loved what Sincere said, the way that he invites people into accountability with compassion to create communities, as he says, the kind of communities and the work that he is here for, where people pull each other on the journey, not letting go, not shoving anyone to the side. But here's the other context that I think is important. I feel lucky in this conversation because I am somebody who holds multiple identities within me. On the one hand, I am a white person and experience a huge amount of privilege within that uh, sort of systemic oppression, the way racism works in American society. On the other hand, conveniently, I'm a woman, and as such, I experience a relative lack of privilege because of the way that sexism and misogyny work in our society. And in particular, I'm a woman leader, often operating in interfaith circles and other places where there are relatively few women leaders speaking out and in, in sort of significant leadership roles. So because that, I have this great opportunity to be both oppressed and depressing at the same time, to get a taste of what it feels like on both ends of the conversation. I am grateful for that, and it helps me with the next big piece of context. What about the conversation between someone actively experiencing oppression or aggression based on systemic oppression and someone who holds the identity of the oppressor? I think about this a lot in the context of being a woman and a woman leader. And I have had plenty of times where I've experienced oppression and sometimes have been able to respond out of my ready-to-share, compassionate, empathic self. I oh, dance break. No, that's good. It's really good to have them every once in a while. Dance break. Dance break. Okay. 
Sometimes after a dance break, actually, I'm able to respond out of my compassionate, empathic self, right? I've had conversations with male colleagues where I've been able to write to them and and tell them about something that they said on Facebook or that I heard them say um, that didn't sit right with me, that I experienced as oppressive. And I have had fabulous back and forths with them where they understand it more deeply and appreciate me talking with them about it. And I feel as though we made a connection and a new learning with each other, that we both know each other more deeply and that they understand the experience of being a woman in this society better. And I have had other times as well, times when I've left an interfaith meeting and not said anything to anyone there, not been ready to engage in conversation, but rather just posted on Facebook that I'm sick of all of the verbal manspreading and I just can't handle it anymore. Times when I am mostly just angry. You know manspreading, right? Do you guys all know the term manspreading? So... Typically, manspreading is like a physical thing, right? When you sit on the, um, I can't do it because I'm in a dress. Um, <laughs> see? Um, so manspreading is like when you're on, a, um, on a, the bus or the, the metro or just even in chairs. Everybody look around. No, I'm kidding. Um, where men tend to take up a lot more space with their bodies. So they might sit with their legs open and their arms over the chair next to them. They're manspreading. They're taking up lots of space, right? Um, I, I also believe in a concept called verbal manspreading, which is taking up lots of space in the conversation. And let me tell you, preachers preacher spread anyway. So when you have preacher spreading plus manspreading, it can be like quite an experience in interfaith circles. We're all spreading a little bit, but whoo. So I have had those times where I have only operated out of anger and frustration, where I haven't been ready to have empathy, to be right there for a conversation. And I think that happens frequently for folks who experience less privileged places in our society, and I will say I actually mostly inhabit a place of uh, a lot of privilege. Um, So I have these little moments of noticing it, but mostly I have a lot of privilege. Of course, there are many folks in our society who have very little privilege, who experience oppression all the time, sometimes in really big ways and sometimes in really little ways. You know, the term microaggressions you might have heard of, it's the idea of sort of little slights that add up and add up and add up experienced often by people of color or by women or by trans people or by queer folks um, uh, that add up over time to feel not micro but indeed very macro. And sometimes, actually, it doesn't start out micro at all. Sometimes aggression is macro right from the very beginning. Deep and significant racism, sexism, uh, homophobia and transphobia and more that folks experience. I read a little bit about call-out culture and the experience, the sort of um, history of call-out culture. So call-out culture typically refers to publicly calling someone out as uh, racist or sexist or, again, pick your poison. Um, 
publicly calling them out and engaging in the conversation in a public way. And so sometimes call-in culture then is sort of the private experience of that. Rather than doing it publicly in a big way, being able to have a conversation with someone one-on-one to talk with them. That's where we get that sort of compassionate, empathic conversation that moves us toward learning. But sometimes that's simply not possible. Ashley Fairbanks spoke about call-out culture. She said it isn't a sport that marginalized people engage in for fun. It comes from a place of desperation. And Riley H., who is a black blogger um, talking about anti-racism and transphobia, um, describes the history of call-out culture. Um, why did we use call-outs back then, she writes? Because the only way to... St- the, I'm sorry, why did we use call-outs back then, they write? Because the only way to stop people from abusing us daily was to scream at them until they stopped. That was the original goal of a call-out, to make someone stop harassing you. Seeing that history of call-out culture... It helps me to understand the moments when I have been called out publicly, when the way that someone has shared with me their experience of something I have done hasn't felt compassionate or empathic at all, but instead has made me feel ashamed and concerned, scared. Because sometimes that's where folks are, right? Sometimes someone shares something in such a way that it really hurts to hear. Perhaps we didn't mean to be offensive or we didn't think that we were, and all of a sudden we're being confronted with it. How then do we respond, those of us with privilege, those of us being called out in that moment? I have had many a bumbling moment at anti-racism trainings. I've even been corrected a few times during community sharing at Platform. That's like the ultimate call out, right? Here I am up here and somebody gets the mic and says, oh, you, you really didn't do that quite right. I am grateful that the folks who have done so have for the most part been compassionate and caring and loving. But most of all, they have been in relationship with me. And that, I think, makes all the difference. In any of those contexts, it is relationship that matters. The truth is that being called out by someone or being called in is so much preferable to the alternatives. Being called out and being given an opportunity to respond, to engage in conversation. The alternative is that folks leave. I um, am part of a Facebook group uh, of colleagues, Unitarian Universalist ministers. There's about a thousand of them on there. And it's a great place to post when you're, um, you know, struggling with your sermon for Sunday morning or you need a resource. It's very active Saturday evening because we're all trying to avoid writing at the same time. Um, So uh, no one's actually working on their own stuff, but they are very ready with poetry suggestions for your sermon or platform that you're working on. Well, there's also a couple of all-women's colleagues groups, um, one for women in their 20s and 30s that I'm in, and one for uh, just women colleagues. Um, And and it's been interesting to see how many of my women colleagues have chosen to post only in those groups because they just don't want everything that comes with the posting in the full colleagues group. And I have wondered, 
if we couldn't have a conversation about that as colleagues, that women are just leaving, just separating themselves from the colleagues group, that their voices are then missing. They aren't able to give the gift of relationship, the gift of conversation. Meg Riley, one of my colleagues, spoke about this recently. When someone whose experience we have not been raised to consider does us the service of pointing out where we are unconscious, footnote, like when we have spinach in our teeth, right? We can be grateful to them. It is an act of love. If they didn't care, they would leave us to our own ignorance. They are telling us how to be a friend, and while hearing what they have to say is often painful, believing them is the doorway to more love. We begin to understand that the pain we feel when told about how we are hurting others is the pain we are putting into the world, often unconsciously. It is being reflected back to us, making us conscious, end quote. Now, how does all this relate to the ethical culture principle of eliciting the best? I sometimes hear that question as we talk about anti-racism and calling people out and calling people in. Well, but what about eliciting the best? I think in our most compassionate, empathic moments, when we are able to be fully present to the conversation, all of those call-ins are a way of eliciting the best. But even when the call-in or the call-out is done out of a place of hurt or anger, even when it is done in a way that is hard to hear, if it is still done in relationship, if it's still done as an invitation, an invitation to hear the anger, to hear the pain, to stay present together, I think that is a kind of eliciting the best as well. Sometimes the best that needs to be elicited from those of us who carry privilege is the opportunity to hear and understand the pain and anger that others experience in the world. That idea of staying in relationship, that is the ultimate best we can elicit here. And so I wonder what that takes for us in a community like this one. What practices must we cultivate? What discipline or learning do we need? I think we need a compassion for others and for ourselves. For others, a compassion that sometimes we don't always speak out of that perfectly prepared, beautifully articulated, empathic voice, but rather out of pain and anger. And so we, with privilege, can exercise our muscle, allowing us to hear others when they are angry and hurt, when they speak imperfectly, and when they ask us to stay engaged with them, even when it is hard for us, when they give us the gift of relationship. And then compassion for self. Without that, I think we are lost. That those of us who who mess up, which is, let me just say, all of us. <laughs> that we have compassion for ourselves to not only forgive ourselves, but actually to celebrate failure as a kind of learning. Meg Riley, the colleague I quoted earlier, put it this way. Failure is not only possible, not only probable, but if we want to grow love, failure is inevitable. 
One of my core beliefs, she writes, is that mistakes from which we learn should, in fact, be celebrated. I live, she says, with a baby who's been learning to walk for the past couple of weeks, and it cracks me up how, as he takes a few steps and then a few more without falling, the adults around him generally burst into applause just as he falls over. (laughs) You've seen that, right? He may think we are cheering for his falls, (laughs) and really, we are. We're cheering for him trying and trying again and trying again, and that always involves falling. Here in this community, we will forever be imperfect. Some of you may remember when we had a monthly theme of imperfection a couple of years ago, and every single Sunday, so conveniently, something went terribly wrong with the Sunday platform service, and we were able, you know, happily to say, oh, it's all planned, it's our month of imperfection. Wasn't it clever of us to set that up for you? We will always be imperfect, subject to the oppression surrounding us, imperfect in the way we speak out about those oppressions, imperfect in the way we experience our expressions of them, imperfect in the way we receive experiences of them. What I hope is that we will be a community that remembers that eliciting the best at its heart is about staying in relationship, about listening when it is hard, speaking when it is harder, coming back to the table and back to each other. A community that practices imperfection together. I think we need some help.